This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Imagine you're on a beautiful desert island. You've unplugged from the digital world. No cell phone, no Twitter, no Facebook, no radio, and no TV. You can only take with you five books. Which five books would you choose and why? These are the questions we're asking the faculty on Season 3 of Office Hours. Joining us on the island today is Dr. W. Robert Godfrey, professor of church history and president of Westminster Seminary, California. He's the author of several books, including John Calvin, Pilgrim and Pastor, and the volume Reformation Sketches. These titles and more are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California. Hi, Bob, and welcome to the island. Thank you, Scott. It's wonderful to be here. Well, I guess it is because I imagine you uh, you had to swim. I came in by the plane. The plane, the plane. <laughs> uh, yeah, because I'm sure you didn't exercise enough foresight to wrap all of your books in an oilskin cloth and then float. I did have enough foresight to end up on an island where there's a deserted Four Seasons where I'm going to station myself. <laughs> well, that's good. And uh, will you have a manservant? Um I, I certainly hope so. <laughs> okay, well, then it wouldn't be deserted, but yes. all right, we'll, we'll let that go. I do think it would be interesting to talk about the difference between a desert island and a deserted island. I took the title from the BBC, and I thought if they didn't quibble, then I wouldn't either. But you're right, it is technically a deserted island, and it wouldn't be desert because it's in the water. Yes, I could take five short books if, it, if there were no water on the island. <laughs> That's right, because you'd probably die before number five. Exactly. So we'll say a plane dropped some books for you, but didn't pick you up. <laughs> I waved and waved, and they waved and flew off. Okay. So now you have your books and your Bibles. We we're conceding that, of course, you have your Bible. So the, these five books are in addition to various editions of God's Holy Word. Excellent. What did you bring with you while you're waiting to be rescued? Do I have to tell? <laughs> well, I guess we can sit here in silence for the, for the remaining 24 well, minutes I, or so. You know, it was actually quite an interesting exercise to sit and think about what I would take. And Of course it was an interesting exercise. I assigned it. Well, I don't always find you all that interesting, but this was more interesting than you usually are. And, of course, it raises okay. questions. What are the chances of uh, getting rescued? Uh, how long am I going to be there? You get a chance to practice your swimming again. That's true. That's true. Out a little ways. Back, back a little ways. ways. <laughs> See how many fins appear above the surface of the water. Exactly. So I made one list of um, entertaining books and then another list of serious books. And I'll talk about the more serious list because I'm assuming we ought to posit being there a long time. Well, we could do both. Vindrunen brought a book about golf. Estelle brought a book about mountain climbing. Vinny brought the most useful book, and that was the um, U.S. Army Manual of Survival. But that's because he didn't have a Four Seasons on his deserted island. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> yeah, that really doesn't necessitate survival. Yes, I'm, I'm assuming a large pantry. Oh. <laughs> Okay, and then which raises questions of the rapture and other things. Where did all those people go? We'll start with a serious list and see, see if we get any further. I thought being sort of driven to have a project, even if they never get published, I would want to have Calvin's Institutes in the first place. And although I know Calvin's Institutes relatively well, 
I'm always surprised when I go back to check something that there are wonderful things that I have not noted or forgotten. And it really is a treasure trove of good things and good writing. Uh, not all theologians, you'll be amazed to hear, are good writers. And Calvin was a splendid eloquent writer. Calvin's Institutes would satisfy both uh, an interest to continue to think about theology and history, but also to be able to read fine writing. Let's go back to the first time you read the Institutes, because you've interacted with them in a variety of ways in the many decades since you first read them. How did you encounter them, and what was your initial reaction? Well, I actually first read them in high school. I had This was in lieu of dates quite and right. entertainment. And quite like, right. Okay, very good. My mother wanted me to go to school dances, and I preferred to stay home with John Calvin. So I had read a book on the five points of Calvinism. This was the Norton edition, I'm guessing you're reading. Uh, well, it certainly was not battles. It was pre-battles. It's nice of you to point that out. Um, in case the listener isn't sure, the Norton yeah. edition was the first English translation made a long time ago. You're probably reading Beveridge. Probably okay. Beveridge. Well, I think for me in those days and still, this is not an exercise in history or tradition or in logic or in psychology, but it is a serious effort to unfold what the Bible as a whole has to say. And I think that's very impressive. Most of us read the last edition or the last translation of the last Latin edition, which is the product of a lot of revision over a long period of time, beginning in 1536. And there are multiple revisions in 59 and then the early 40s and through the 40s and so forth. So what we get is a very polished piece of work. Very few works have probably been revised as often, carefully, and thoroughly as the Institutes. Do you think that makes a difference? It makes it longer. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's true. I mean, the, the, the 1536 Institutes are actually very concise, very small, and could be read relatively quickly, maybe in a couple of days. Right. That certainly isn't true of the 59 Institutes in, the, say, the Battles edition. Right. And this occurs to me just off the top of my head, so it's probably only worth that. But it's almost like comparing the Westminster Shorter Catechism with the Larger Catechism. Now, they were written very close together, but what you see in the final edition of the Institutes is a lot more polemical theology interacting with critiques that arose in Calvin's own lifetime. But for me as a historian, that actually makes it more interesting to see not only his careful pastoral positive statement of what he's proposing, but also to see his ability to interact uh, sometimes quite sharply but I think fairly with those with whom he disagrees. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. That raises an interesting question. What do we do with the rhetoric of the 16th century? Often people have said to me, well, that was then, and the implication is we know better now than to speak to people the way they did. And there's a sort of implied moral superiority in the way we relate to not only Calvin and the Institutes, but other texts of the era that use sharp language in engaging with opponents. What do you think about that? Well, I think as we seek to minister in our own time, we have to be aware of the notion of what is polite and proper of our own time and seek to conform to that. But frankly, I'm inclined to think that uh, Calvin's day communicated in some ways more appropriately and more Christianly. I think today too often we pull punches not because we agree with people, but because it wouldn't be nice to say things as they really are. So, you know, I think there are reasons to defend the more polite and measured discourse that surrounds us. But I think there are equally good reasons and maybe even better reasons to defend the more polemic and more straightforward discourse that you find in the 16th century. 
I asked the question having in mind some of the things C.S. Lewis says in The Abolition of Man about the way in modern and late modern society we have, perhaps unintentionally, dehumanized people. And I've sometimes wondered if our refusal to engage with people directly and even forcefully at times doesn't in a way unintentionally take away their humanity. Well, I think so. I think it can be a very subtle way of communicating that ideas don't really count. What we believe doesn't count. You don't count, and God doesn't count. What matters most is that you think that I'm a nice person. Right. Which could arguably be called a kind of idolatry. Right. Now, on the other hand, the sharp theological disagreements of the 16th century often led to wars of religion. So, you know, one of the motives of the growing niceness of the Western world is so that people with sharply divergent points of view can live peaceably together. And that's certainly, in my judgment at least, a good thing. What's your second volume that you'd like to have with you on the island? I would like to have Francis Turretin's Elenctic Theology. Because when I have read Turretin, I am regularly impressed with the clear, succinct ability he has to state his position. And it represents that movement and development of Reformed theology into a more scholastic form, so that Turretin's writing is significantly less elegant than Calvin's, but shares a similar clarity and helpfulness. And for me as a historian, I look forward to being able to spend more time comparing how and why Calvin said things with how and why Turretin says things. And notice what Turretin talks about that Calvin didn't and vice versa. So it would be a comparative enterprise as well as really having valued Turretin in the times I've read him and uh, used him as a help to look at contemporary theological discussions. You've anticipated a couple of questions I was going to ask following up. You've been talking too much. First is, some people would say, what do you need Turretin? If you've read Calvin, you've read the beginning and the end of Reformed theology. Do you agree with that sentiment? I think I would agree with a sentiment that says, taken as a whole, Calvin is the best theologian the Reformed tradition has produced. I do think he had a remarkable education, a remarkable knowledge of the Bible and of biblical languages, a remarkable writing ability, and a remarkably balanced mind. It's not to say he was inspired or perfect, but I do think he was extraordinary. But over 100 years, the refinements of Roman Catholic and Lutheran critiques of Reformed theology had become sharper, had raised other things. And I think it's very useful to see the way in which the great scholastic theologians, Turretin probably sitting on the top of the heap, reacted and sought to defend and extend issues in Reformed theology. Again, Turretin's not perfect. Uh, There are places where he differs from Calvin, and usually I agree with Calvin. By the middle of the 17th century, however, Calvin isn't being cited very much by Reformed theologians, and sometimes when he is cited, he's being criticized. So evidently, the Reformed, while they certainly had a high regard for Calvin, didn't see him as the be-all and end-all of Reformed theology, as some have tried to make it. Right. And I think that is because of both the changing environment of theology, where it has become the battle lines have been drawn more clearly and um, new battles have emerged, but also the emergence of scholastic theology as the way of doing theology uh, means that for a lot of 17th century theologians, Calvin is a little discursive and a little vague. And it has been pointed out by some Calvin scholars that he didn't have a lot of formal, traditional 
education in theology. And so there are some questions that either he didn't anticipate that he might have or simply didn't address or didn't think were interesting. So they found maybe some technical... Well, I, I don't know how far I'd want to go down that path. I think history shows that uh, being educated in theology doesn't necessarily make you a good theologian. Um, <laughs> well, that's true. I can take you in the library <laughs> and show you shelves and shelves of books I don't want on my island that's that illustrate that point. True. I think there are interesting questions Calvin doesn't address. He doesn't say much at all on the extent of the atonement, which continues to be a slight mystery to me because it seems so implicit in all that he does. There are certainly areas in which uh, the scholastics go beyond Calvin and help us beyond what Calvin can help us to do. I am definitely part of the party that thinks there is a fundamental continuity between Calvin and the later Calvinist theologians, and that unity is one of the more important things to assert for the very small number of historians who care about such questions. You've used the adjective scholastic several times. What does that mean? And for some people, it's a pejorative. I take it you're not using it that way. No, I have more and more come over the years to appreciate scholasticism as a theological method. It's not perfect. It represents a move away from the tendency to be more platonically oriented that you find in 16th century Renaissance thought to a more Aristotelian, return to a more Aristotelian, careful, precise theological formulation in the 17th century, as you'd had earlier in the Middle Ages in some theologians. I have no great vested interest in the battle between Plato and Aristotle, but I do think the scholastic theology expresses theology in a way that is very, very clear and actually is an avenue by which often one can be fairer to one's opponents and express what the opponent actually thinks more accurately than I think is often done in later theology. One of my frustrations as I listen to a lot of debates in, you know, the last 40 years in the evangelical and non-evangelical world, I'm constantly feeling as a historian, these people are talking past each other. They're not communicating. They're not hearing each other. They're not talking about the same things. And I'm always impressed to read the scholastics and how they begin with trying to establish as carefully as they can the state of the question. What are we talking about? And uh, I think a lot of modern theology really fails there. Do you agree that we could maybe use the word academic in place of scholastic, since the word scholastics carries such baggage? No. Because? I have to have reasons for my opinions? <laughs> Come on. Well, given that we had just discussed scholasticism, <laughs> I use sometimes like to use the, word, the adjective academic just to say that, look, this is theology that was done in schools, and scholastic has carried baggage that has negative connotations that are unnecessary. The historian in me says no to your question because uh, the scholastics called themselves scholastics. So we're using the label. They knew what it meant then. But they knew what it meant. Uh, but it is also true that you can be academic without being scholastic. I mean, yes, you can. <laughs> You're learning a lot today, aren't you? <laughs> I deny that proposition in the following three ways. <laughs> well, uh, my, my third choice, since you, yeah, okay. you're talking so much, I'm never going to get through all five. Yes. Um, uh, my third choice is Herman Bavinck's Reformed Dogmatique, or Reformed Dogmatics, which is not scholastic. I mean, stylistically, it is not scho scholastic. It's, it's discursive. It's discursive. It's academic. But there were discursive scholastics. Uh, true, but Turretin wasn't. So I think scholasticism does describe not only an academic approach to theology, but a certain style of academic approach to theology. Well, we'll have to carry on this debate. Uh, off mic. And, and I think the critics of scholasticism are usually really wrong and shouldn't be allowed to take a word and abuse it and misuse it. So I'm for the word. Okay. And so let's talk Have about you been converted? No. I, I have an anxious bench here. You can come <laughs> forward. In the beginning, God said, let there be. And there was. God the Father created through his word. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. 
And the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God the Son is the Word. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. God the Spirit works through the preaching of the Word. For 31 years, Westminster Seminary, California has stood for the truth and reliability of God's Word. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu, 760-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. Tell me what it is that attracts you to Bobbing. Well, I think Bavink is another great theological mind. He was part of the great revival of Calvinism in the Netherlands in the late 19th, early 20th century. When you think of great reformed systematic theologies, I'm suspecting almost everybody would agree that Calvin, Turretin, and Bavink ought to be on that list. And the historian in me thinks it would be interesting at the Four Seasons to sit through the years and compare how they write on particular topics, what changes Bavink's rather intimate acquaintance with 19th century theology, most of which was pretty bad, what impact that had on the way he chose to formulate Reformed theology at the turn of the century. So it, it's largely a historical enterprise for me that I would be fascinated to see how these three great Reformed minds have approached issues in, in slightly different contexts and slightly different styles, certainly in different intellectual arenas, and see what we can learn are there virtues in Bavink that attract you to him besides his historical place? Well, I remember reading Bavink when I was in seminary and thinking he really sort of predicts the rise of Karl Barth in that kind of theology beforehand. So I think a, a view of reality that has a slight predictive value that sees reality clearly to know sort of where it's going kind of validates the wisdom and insight of the person. And so it would be Bavink as a reflector of 19th century European thought that would intrigue me. He's also very faithful, generally, to the Reformed Confessions. Right. And he seems to engage the tradition thoughtfully. Right. Uh, you know, I think really great theologians are widely read, are well-versed in theology, in the Bible, and in history. A lot of theological mischief has been done by people who claim to be part of a tradition but don't know the tradition or just say silly things because they don't know anything about church history. This is somewhat of an apology for my own life, you understand, but I actually do think church history is useful to the church. And he interacts with Scripture very well, very thoughtfully, and integrates it well and accounts for it better than some theologians. And like Turretin and like Calvin, he was part of a reformed world that had a great deal of creativity and energy so that he was part of that Kuyperian revival where you really had some very serious biblical scholars. You had Kuyper himself with the wide range of his interests so that it was he was living in a very exciting as well as very disciplined uh, religious environment. And he was very influential on at least two major North American, Dutch-American theologians, Gerhardus Voss, who arguably borrowed fairly heavily from the Reformata Dogmatique in his own dogmatic theology that he taught at what became Calvin Seminary. And then Cornelius Ventil can hardly be understood apart from Bavink. Right, and Kuiper. But and, yes, and Kuiper, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. All right, and your, your fourth volume. My fourth volume, I think, would be The Collected Works of Shakespeare. Okay. As a college student and a high school student, when we were forced to read Shakespeare, I never got it. I didn't see what all the fuss was about. Yes, you know, they were mildly interesting plays and had quotable quotes, but I didn't get it. And I'm still not sure I get it, but presumably I'm going to have time on the island to get it. Uh, I have recently been reading and listening to some Harold Bloom who— uh, is so enthusiastic about Shakespeare, I'm sort of convinced there must be more than I've got. 
You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. That's an interesting position because I have felt that about a number of works in my life where people have been very enthusiastic and I have sometimes felt I'm the only fellow in the room who doesn't get it. And sometimes it's turned out that I was right and sometimes it's turned out that I was wrong. More often the latter, I suspect. (laughs) So how, how does one sort that out? I mean, there must be something intrinsic to Shakespeare that draws you beyond Bloom's enthusiasm for him. You know, I think part of it is, as a callow youth, I did not get poetry. You know, if you have something to say, just say it. And I think, to some extent, it's been the work I've done on the Psalms that has drawn me into poetry, helped me appreciate the power of poetry to say things in an affective way. We do live in a prosaic world, and Shakespeare would have lived in a world that was much more saturated with the Psalms. In the churches in which Shakespeare was raised and to which he would have been exposed, the Psalms would have been everywhere. Right. And we live in a relatively psalmless age. Right. And poetry used to be a quite popular medium. I mean, uh, both stage plays and um, the recitation of... Who are those people who wander around with guitars? We, <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking of beat poets, but I'm, I don't think that's what you no, have no, in no. mind. No, no, no. I mean... Um, troubadours? Troubadours. Thank you. Okay. Uh, when we think about troubadours, you know, all the way back to the, the oral recitation of the Iliad and the Odyssey, poetry shaped the thinking and feeling of common people. And the tragedy, I think, of poetry in the 20th century is that most of it has become a very arcane discipline of experts and no longer connects to the popular mind. The closest thing we have are are song lyrics, which by and large don't measure up to uh, Shakespeare or Milton. When you were in school, were you made to memorize poems? No, I don't think so. Interesting. My impression has been that until a certain point, relatively recently, it was pretty common, even in public schools, for schools to follow something some remnant of the trivium where you learned grammar and you were made to memorize facts and and basic information, and then logic, you were made to figure out or come to understand how these things work together, and then rhetoric, you were made to learn how to express these things. And sometimes that third phase of education has been described as the poetic. Dorothy Sayers does that. Right. And as a reflection of that, it was common, at least in the first half of the 20th century, for students to be made to learn to memorize poetry so that I've known people who are quite elderly who are able to recite poems of various quality well into their old age that right. they learned as, as young people. And, and one of the reasons that poetry is good and easier than prose to memorize is that it has a cadence, it has a meter, it has a rhyme scheme, so that there really is a flow to it. And you like a song— remember it on a number of different levels. It's why psalm singing is so important, metrical psalms in the church, because you get the psalms in your head because of their metrical structure in a much easier way than to sit down and try to memorize the free verse of the Psalter. Do you have a favorite play or sonnet? No, I haven't really moved on to the sonnets. I can't claim to have reached those sorts of poetic heights. What about the plays? At this point of my meager development, tend to agree with Harold Bloom that I really like Macbeth. Maybe it's the Calvinist who likes evil portrayed in uh, all of its stark, uh, hideous reality. <laughs> uh, second, I think, as with many people, Hamlet. I don't get the comedies, so I need a lot of years to figure out comedy. I'm, I'm a tragedy person by nature. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, I'm attracted to the comedies and and less interested in the tragedies. It's because you're a post-millennialist. I think everything's (laughs) coming out right. Or I'm just addicted to entertainment. (laughs) What's your fifth volume? 
I labored over this and finally decided on Tolstoy's War and Peace. You, you are planning on being here for a while. <laughs> the only reason I hesitated about that was that I've read it so often that I know it so well that I'm wondering if it will continue to entertain me, but it does. So that's interesting. You, how many times do you think you've read it? I think about six. Why? Uh, have you ever listened to a great symphony more than once? Probably. Probably not. On <laughs> well, my father used to. It was. Thank you. Yeah, it wasn't really a, an option. Dad turned I up see. the stereo, and we went to bed, and we all listened to Gustav Mahler. And, and did he have a soporific effect? A Anton Bruckner. You know, actually, the the planets. Holst. I really, to this day, love the planets, and I like to listen to it when I'm writing, particularly um, the Bringer of War. If I'm <laughs> writing something controversial, <laughs> I think you ought to, um, as your next project, have the faculty back to talk about which five pieces of music they take. Well, with. that's a good idea. I, I'm full of good ideas. I have no follow-through, but I have wonderful <laughs> ideas. <laughs> is there something uh, then particular about War and Peace? Is it just long books? Do you, do you read James Joyce too? or I've read some Joyce, but I can't claim to be an aficionado. I read one volume of Proust and didn't get it. So there's something about Tolstoy. I think Tolstoy tells a story wonderfully, and he has the most remarkable, vivid human characters. There's a little bit too much loopy philosophy of history, but sometimes through I kind of enjoy that, and other times it really annoys me. But it's the characters and the story that are compelling. You know, I think people are often intimidated by classics, and it's a tragedy in the case of Tolstoy because it's not a boring classic. It's not hard. The only thing hard about Tolstoy is keeping the name straight because there are so many characters, but it's a great read. And to live without knowing Natasha Rostov is not to have lived. Talk about the value of stories. You're a historian. You tell stories for a living. And God tells stories. In some sense, Scripture itself is predominantly story. stories and a coherent story taken all together, a true historical story. Why stories? I think stories assert the importance and diversity of humanity. Our stories point to the fact that our lives have significance and coherence. And in light of dominant forms of secular thought and social Darwinism denied but very real in our world, there's a great tendency to dehumanize human beings. And the telling of stories is a way of confronting us with the reality of humanity and its strengths and weaknesses and diversity in a way that I think is fundamentally very Christian when done well, even by authors that are not themselves Christian. They help us see reality. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.